It's great to see you. Welcome all those of you in the chapel and those of you who are online this morning. We welcome you. And it's great to see all of you here. I think we need three services, Jan. I think we need three services. That's a good thing. So uh, I know she uh, took care of that. We've, we went back and forth on the times. And thanks for clarifying that for us this morning, Jan. 8, 9, 30, and 11 starting on May the 27th. So looking forward to that. We are trying to discover more and more about Jesus. The songwriter said, more about Jesus, let me learn. And the more we learn about Jesus, the more reason we have to love and honor and serve Him. Amen? And so I just want to know everything I can about Him. We talked about the angel telling his parents that his name would be Jesus because he was going to save his people from their sins. We, we looked at his life at 12 years of age when he told his parents, I must be about my father's business. Last week, we looked at the first miracle that he performed where he turned the water into wine. And I would like to personally congratulate everybody for coming back. (laughs) I wasn't sure how that was going to work out. No, I knew you'd be back because I like the fact that we keep it real here. Amen? And I love you guys, and hopefully you know I love you too. And uh, thank you for being here. So today, we're going to talk about tobacco. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) It's a series. It's starting. You can tell what a person, a lot about a person by discovering what they are passionate about. And I want to look this morning at Jesus' passion for a few minutes. Um, sometimes we create a picture or an image of Jesus that is a little bit, um, I think, misleading. Uh, I don't know if it comes from, uh, certainly he is fully God and fully man, and it comes from the mystery that surrounds that, but, but there's sometimes in, in movies, and in, 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 in movies, uh, dramatic depictions of Jesus, Jesus is this almost zombie-like figure. I remember a, a film many, many years ago, a very old film that my wife's grandfather showed us one time at a family outing, and and uh, I don't even remember if it had sound, but Jesus just kind of walked around. He never blinked. <laughs> he just kind of doing him. And uh, it was, I'm sure it was amazing in the 30s and 40s when no one had ever seen a depiction of Jesus on film like that. But it just somehow it made Jesus a little bit cold and lifeless. I'm glad that Jesus was fully God. Amen. But I'm glad he was fully man. And he laughed. And he got angry in the temple. And he was, he was not some, he was mystical, yes, in his incarnation, but he was, he was very much where he was at the time that he was there. What was Jesus passionate about? In the early stages of his ministry, in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is calling his disciples, and he calls his disciples to follow him, and then, it's not a perfect chronological depiction of it, but in, there's a set of miracles that took place in Matthew chapter 9 that happen sort of one right after the other, and they almost appear as though they're happening, happening in reactionary mode. Jesus is almost reacting, and he's performing miracles, it seems, in reaction to the cries of the people. If you read Matthew chapter 9, you will read that he called Matthew, it says in verse 9, as Jesus passed from there, as he went there, he called Matthew. And then when he was finished with that, it said as he was speaking, and he began talking about the wineskins, the old, uh, old and new wineskins. And then it says, when he finished saying that, and while he was saying these things, rather, in verse 18, while he was saying these things, 
Jairus comes up to him and says, Jesus, my daughter died. And Jesus says, okay, let's go. So he's on his way to, and while he's on his way to Jairus' house, a woman with an issue of blood stops him and touches him by the hem of the garment, and he heals her. And then it says in verse number 27, and Jesus, as Jesus passed on from there, so he calls Matthew, gives a lesson, gets called by Jairus, on his way to Jairus' house, heals a woman with the issue of blood. While he's leaving there, two blind men cry out, Son of David, have mercy on us. And he heals the blind men. And then it says in verse 32, as they were going away. I mean, this is a, this is a, this is a rapid fire succession of miracles. As, the, as those blind men were going away, behold, a de- demon oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And Matthew the writer, who wrote the earliest gospel, the, the, the oldest gospel Matthew wrote, he sums up the ministry and the passion of Jesus in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. And I want us to look at it for a few moments this morning. Let's read beginning in verse number 35. This is Matthew's summary and description of Jesus' passion for life and ministry. Verse 35, and Jesus... He sums all those miracles up. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogue and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Before I begin this morning, I want to give a warning. The purpose and the prayer of my heart for throughout this week and for this sermon is that God will call you to work for him. If that scares you, you can't leave. We'll be done in about 25 minutes. No, I'm just kidding. No, I I, I say that because this is Jesus' prayer and passion. I want to walk through these verses and just sort of describe Jesus' passion. And I think I see three of them just sort of right here in this text. And I just want to kind of walk through the text, try to understand what the Word of God says, and then try to make an application at the end. Notice with me, first of all, Jesus' passionate pursuit in his life, his passionate pursuit to do the will of God. In verse number 35, it says Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. Now, Matthew is not literally saying that Jesus went to every city and every village on earth. He's saying, this is, a, this is a summary of this verse. Matthew is saying that Jesus went wherever he could go and he took advantage of every opportunity to spread and preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. Jesus did not stay in one place. That's a good, that's a good word right there. Somebody said, well, Pastor Troy, what are you guys doing planting a church in Toronto? I was up there this week for three days, had a f- fabulous time with Pastor Ezra and his team. What are you doing in Toronto? Isn't Manita enough? Well, you know what? The opportunity presented itself. And God spoke to us and engaged us. And I want to be like Jesus. And I want to go through all the cities and all the villages that he opens the door for me to go to. Amen? 
It says he healed every disease and every affliction. It doesn't mean that there was no one sick at all. It means that every opportunity that presented itself to him, Jesus took advantage of it. His pursuit was to do the will of God. It says a similar passage in, earlier in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4. It says he did those things and his fame spread throughout all of Syria. And they brought him all those who were sick. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. The pursuit of Jesus was very simply to do the will of his heavenly father by proclaiming and displaying the kingdom of God on earth. In this passage of scripture, it says he went through all the cities and villages. If he was going to ask us to go or command us to go, he himself first went. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't sit down on a prairie somewhere, fold his legs and cross his arms and say, who would like to hear my amazing stories? Jesus got up and went, right? One of the core values at Eastlake is we're going to be involved in our community. And we say it like this. Jesus didn't sit idly by and wait for people to come to him. He got up and met them where they were. And we got to do that. You see, Jesus had a passionate pursuit. He went to all the villages and all the cities. He was teaching in their synagogues. It says he was teaching, proclaiming, and healing. That was his, that was his work in all these villages and cities. I was interested to do a little research on the synagogue of Jesus' day, and I I was amazed, not amazed, I was excited to read that the 21st century church didn't invent church planting, and and satellite churches have been around for 2,000 years. Because you see, you had one temple in Jerusalem, but there were many synagogues all around the country. And there were synagogues, as a matter of fact, Jewish law said that you had to have 10 devout Jews, and you could have a synagogue. So you go way out of the country where there was nothing but sheep herders and you had a little sheep herder synagogue. And you go to this city and there was quite a few people so you had three or four synagogues. I wonder if they were like us today and they ever had split synagogue. I don't like the way you cut that lamb's throat. I'm going to another synagogue. Anyways, uh, that's not in the sermon. That was free. But there were synagogues everywhere. The, the historians tell us that at the time of Jesus, there were 600,000, approximately 600,000 residents in Jerusalem. 600,000. So you couldn't have one temple and everybody show up on Sunday. That's quite a Sunday school role, isn't it? They tell us that there were approximately between 450 and 480 synagogues in the city of Jerusalem alone. And out in the country they had synagogues. And in this city they had synagogues. In Decapolis and, and all around Galilee. And all these, they had synagogues everywhere. Wherever there were ten devout Jews, because that's the number it took to do the work. If you had ten devout Jews, you could have a synagogue. And now you're getting a picture of Jesus walking and talking and going from city to city. And then out to the village. And everywhere he went, he found the synagogue. And he went into the synagogue. And, where the, and the synagogue was the place where discourse happened. It was the place where teaching um, from the Torah took place. And people went to the synagogue all the time. They would usually place these synagogues near water, a creek or a, a river, because it was in that place there was a lot of washing rituals in the Old Testament. And they had to be near water or have access to water. And, and they, would, they would have a synagogue, and that was where they would read the Old Testament. That's where they would do the practices of their Jewish religion. And Jesus would come to city, he would find the synagogue, he would go in, there would be some old guy with a long white beard and a funny looking robe or whatever the case were. He would be working and doing the work of the Jewish religion and Jesus would stand up and say, hey guys, I gotta tell you something, it's about to be outdated. He went to the synagogue and what was he doing? He was teaching. I wonder what Jesus, wouldn't you like to sit under one lesson in Jesus in a Jewish synagogue? 
Some old guy's over here going, um, da -dum -dum. and Jesus gets up and goes, you know, guys, I want to tell you something. There's coming a day. You're not going to worship God in here, or here, or here. You're going to worship God in spirit and in truth. And all the Isaiah prophecies and all the prophecies that old guy over there is reading, they're about me. Now, he didn't say it exactly like that, but what he was doing was he was teaching how the Old Testament was, pre was predicting and prophesying about a day that would come where God Almighty would send a Messiah. And that Messiah would break the bonds, not just of a Roman government, but of sin and of death. And he would put to rest all of the, all of the, all of the structural religious, I hate to say baggage, but the structural religious practice of the Old Testament that had not really fulfilled anything. It had just been the plan of God up to that point. But this Messiah would once and for all finish it. There was a new day coming. The kingdom of God was at hand. They didn't, like, they didn't like that a whole lot when Jesus would do that. He was messing up there. He was proclaiming the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom. He was telling them of a new and more glorious way. For years they had worshipped according to function. And faith was a distant and far off thing. And now their faith was getting ready to become reality. And the bonds of the old way would be fulfilled in Jesus. And he would set them at liberty. And they would really find true forgiveness. Because there's, it's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God coming near. He's referring to something truly revolutionary. He means that with his own coming to this earth. That God is going to reign and rule in the hearts of men and women. And you're no longer, folks, he's saying, going to have to bring your sacrifice. You're no longer going to have to make the trek to Jerusalem as you do every year for Passover. You're no longer going to have to be living under the bonds and the chains of this way. There's coming a day where God, through his son, is going to offer the ultimate sacrifice. And the, your sin is really going to be forgiven. And the God of the universe is going to be king and lord and reign in your heart and life. I would love to have heard those sermons that Jesus was going to round to all the villages. Wouldn't have you? He was healing every disease and every affliction. The good news of the kingdom was accompanied by the demonstration of the power of God. This was confirmation among those who saw him that he was sent from God. In many places where Jesus is healing people or near the synagogue or healing people after being in the synagogue, the scripture tells us that the, the people stand around and say, we've never seen this before in Israel. We've never seen this. Can I give you an absolute take-it-to-the-bank fact? Wherever Jesus goes, the evidence of his presence will inevitably be there. Wherever Jesus goes, the evidence of his presence will inevitably be there. This was his pursuit. This was his passion. He took advantage of every opportunity to preach and proclaim and demonstrate the power and the glory of God. Notice with me Jesus' passionate perspective. In verse 36, we see his perspective, and it's very passionate. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I used to think, when I, when I, when I, when I used to read this scripture... For a long time, I had this image in my head that Jesus was somewhere at a specific place, and he could have been. But I've always thought that Jesus, in this scripture, when he saw the crowds, 
He was on top of a hill looking down into the city. Or he was somewhere where he could see the multitude who were following him. And in that moment while looking at this large crowd, he had compassion. And that likely could have happened. But the more I studied this passage of scripture, the more I see it in this context. That Jesus was going here and here and here. And he was going in the synagogue here and here and here. And he was preaching and he was teaching and he was healing. And the summation of all of that created in him this deep, passion, this deep compassion for the people because after going all around the country, going into all the different synagogues, seeing all the different priests, hearing all the different sermons he said these people need help he had compassion, he was moved, his his perspective is shaped by a deep emotional connection this was no ordinary view, the scripture says he had compassion, he was moved with compassion, this was not physical pity as someone who is sick and Jesus physically feels sorry and heals them, this is a, uh, a spiritual compassion from deep within Jesus, it is to be moved with pity from the very inmost being, it is an emphatic word signifying vehement affection by which the heart is moved, as a matter of fact, You've probably heard this, and, and, and comedians have made, made a, had a good time with this, but we in the Western world view the, view the seat of affection as the heart, right? So you tell your wife, I love you with all of my heart. That's a good thing to do, by the way, guys, several times a day. In, ancient, in the ancient world, and in, in the, in the, in the original here, the seat of the affection and emotion was the bowels. Now lean over to her and say, I love you, honey. With all of my bowels. I'm glad we fixed that one, aren't you? That just a little... But anyways, the point is... The point is that it's translated that from, from, deep, from the deepest part of who Jesus was, something rose up with great compassion. Great compassion for these people. His perspective on the people came from God's own heart of empathy and he didn't look at the world and say well look at all them heathens they're going to hell in a handbasket. we just need to hope they never come around us and rub off on us no no he looked at them and deep within him he said man they're going to these synagogues and these priests don't even know God and these leaders don't even oh he, he was moved from within he had a deep deep sense of compassion for them Jesus' perspective on the people was shaped by his experiences in the religious culture of that day. This might be one of the most important things I say. He says they were harassed and annoyed. It's a Greek word. Uh, I think the King James says that they fainted, and, it, and that's it's somewhat accurate, but not 100%. It doesn't mean they passed out, fainted, and were unconscious. It's a word that means they were so harassed and annoyed that they finally just laid down where they were out of exhaustion. And his perspective on the people was shaped not necessarily by the wickedness of the people. It was shaped by the awfulness of the religious leaders of that day. He said, look at these poor people. They go in. They go out. They do the duty. They go in. They go out. They go in. And they're harassed. They're exhausted with religious exercise and no power. It's 1151, and I could preach till 1251 on how important it is that we don't get into the bad habit of having religious exercise without the power of God in our midst.
Jesus, you see, Jesus had a different view of the world than most churches do today. You know, we, you, let's just, can we just be honest for a couple minutes? It'd be good for the rest of the time, but if you'll just let me for a couple minutes be honest. You know how we do it in the church, right? Well, we're all spiritual. We're here on Sunday morning, and, and all them heathens out there, look at them driving down the road going to go fishing. <laughs> and probably drink beer. <laughs> you have to listen to last week to get that joke, but anyways... And we look at the world with disdain. But Jesus looked at the world. And his heart broke. He said, they got all this religion. They got all these synagogues. And if, can I make it 21st century? We got all these churches. And people are yearning and longing and doing all, jumping through all these religious hoops. But they don't even know God. They're harassed. They're fainting. They're, they're just, they're so annoyed and harassed with the burden of this religion that they're just laying down where they are, exhausted. His perspective on the people was shaped by the experiences of, of, he had in the religious culture. He said this, this was interesting, he said, this, this, this would have really created a problem at district conference. He went church, 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 church. He preached in all these churches went to all these synagogues, and he got done. He said, you know what these people are like? They don't even have a shepherd. (laughs) You wonder why the Pharisees wanted to kill him? Because he got all the church people outside the church on a hillside by the lake, and he said, your pastor stinks. (laughs) Think about it. All all of these people were practicing religious religion. All of these people were going to be served by the priest and the, pre- and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were all participating in their religion. And he said, these people don't even have a shepherd. Wow. Is it any wonder they said, he's messing with our church. Let's kill that dude. That's the unauthorized Troy Keaton non-Greek version, but it's in there somewhere. His perspective is a grand indictment of the religious practices and leaders in that day. This really was an indictment upon the existing religious formality that did not change anyone's life and did not have the power of God. Oh, do we have a need today for the power of God in our life and in our churches. Jesus' perspective on the people was shaped by his understanding of their inability to help themselves. You see, Jesus said they are, they are harassed like sheep without a shepherd and they're helpless. They don't know what to do. God has put several atheists in my life in recent weeks and months, as I've shared that with you already, and recently having a conversation with one. This was, this was the conversation. He said, you know, Troy, I trust in, and he said his first and last name, I trust in myself, first and last name. I tr- That's who I, is that not what I'm supposed to do? I said, yeah, you should trust in yourself in some things. Driving home. Hold on to the steering wheel. Trust yourself to get yourself there. Don't take it off and say, Jesus, take the wheel. Don't do that, okay? Because you will die. Trust yourself. You can do this. Drive yourself home. But I told him, I said, there's two things you can't trust yourself with. Sin, you don't know what to do with it. And you can't stop it and you can't control it. It will control you. You can't control it. But I got good news for you. Jesus knows how to deal with sin this morning if you're broken and bound and wrapped in sin Jesus came to set us free from the chains of sin and death I told that friend of mine I said you don't what's your plan for death 
Are you trusting in yourself for death? What's your plan? How are you arranging that now so that after you die, you can fix all that and take care of it and do whatever needs to be done? See, see, we, we, we trust our sure. Yeah, we need to pick out what we're going to eat and take care of business. But even then, we rely on God. But there's two things we just, we're helpless with, and that's sin and death. And Jesus' view of the people was shaped by their inability to help themselves. He said they're harassed and they are helpless. Let me notice this in closing. Jesus' passionate plea. In verses 37 and 38, he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. As a matter of fact, Jesus said the problem with church growth is not the world. It's the church. Many times we think if we could just fix the world, our church would grow. Or if we could just fix the world, we could have revival. If we could just fix the world, if the world would stop being so worldly. No. Jesus said the harvest is fine. The harvest is abundant. The harvest is plentiful. It's good. It's done. The problem is that those fully engaged in the kingdom and the work of the kingdom of God are too few. The harvest is fine. Don't worry about that. It's good. It's ready to roll. It's, he said in John chapter 4, look, look under the fields. They are white and ready for harvest. You see, in the Old Testament, it was winter and spring and summer. And when Jesus showed up, it was fall. It was time to harvest. And he said the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. And this is his plea. He doesn't tell them to intensify their religious behavior. He doesn't compel the disciples to run out the door and start doing what he was doing. He doesn't ask them to up their weekly sacrificial offerings. He does, he does not encourage them to start teaching more or hold, holding more Bible studies or holding a healing crusade. He doesn't tell them any of that. He asks them with passion in his voice, will you pray? Will you pray? He didn't say, let's take an offering. We need to raise, a mo- we need to raise money. He didn't say that. He didn't say, we need to get more organized. He didn't say that. All of that's good and well. He didn't say, let's go out and try to tell people how bad it is and let's go bust the Pharisees in the mouth. He didn't say that. This is what he told the 12 disciples. This is what he tells us. Will you pray with me that the Lord of the harvest will raise up men and women who will go into his harvest field? Will you pray? It's an interesting, interesting passage, interesting plea, isn't it? Jesus is passionate about two groups of people in this passage of Scripture. The crowd who in mass are living without hope. And those who are in the church who need to hear and answer the call of God to engage in the work of the kingdom of God. So Jesus, please, how will we know when that is answered? The musicians are coming. We'll know that Jesus' plea is answered when prayer becomes our first action, not our last resort. I like to say this around here. I think I got this from Daniel Henderson. Prayer is not the only thing we do here. It is the first thing we do here. Amen? Jesus didn't say, you know, Peter and Paul, or Paul was still out there. Peter and James and John. I need to send you off to seminary so we can win the world. I love education. We need to get it all of it we can. Jesus said, I just want you to pray. 
we pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers? How many this morning just say, I'll pray with you, Pastor Troy. I'll pray with you. I'll pray. I'll pray. Lord, will you raise us up so that we can reach and do the work of the kingdom? We'll know Jesus' plea is answered when we engage in every opportunity to spread the gospel. You probably figured this out by now. We're a little bit weird at East Lake. <laughs> Say, Pastor Troy, we have our own little church here. What are we doing going to Toronto? Because the opportunity came. And by the way, next year we're going to Dallas. Amen. What about the GO team, Global Outreach? Got all these team members are working on a big study for the fall. Want to raise up more men and women to be multipliers. What are we, Pastor Troy, I mean, we got two services, going to have three. Can't you relax? No, we're going to go. What about SMLCA? Why do we have to get involved in that anyway? Although it turned out pretty well by the grace of God. Why do we have to get, I mean, my goodness sakes, have you been in here during the week? You can't, you know, it's so crowded in here. You, you, you know, there's... It's terrible. You have to go outside to change your mind. It's so crowded with kids running around. Why would we do that? Because Jesus prayed. Would you pray that the Lord of the harvest would raise up laborers? And there's 207 potential laborers coming here every day that we're praying over and teaching and leading and believing and dreaming. And they're all perfect. Never mind. I want to tell you something. We're trying to answer the prayer that Jesus told us to pray. Why would you help other pa- Why do we have pastors' conferences? Troy, we got 10 or 11 people on staff here. Why are you concerned about that pastor in Illinois? Because we're going to do what Jesus did and go to all the cities and all the villages and do everything we can to strengthen and encourage the church because there's really only one church, amen? And that's the church of Jesus Christ. And you help one pastor, you help a hundred people or a thousand people. You see, the vision that God has given us to develop, not the buildings, but the vision that will need facilities, the vision is an answer to the prayer that Jesus prayed. We'll know his plea is answered when we see the world as our mission field, not as our enemy. We'll know his plea is answered when we understand the inadequacies of status quo religion. Listen, my friend. Listen, my friend. We can't come here week after week, boring after boring, man, fleshly, fleshly man's effort after fleshly man's effort. That's status quo religion. We must have the power of God unleashed in our midst. We'll know his plea is answered when every believer understands their role in the kingdom. You see, this is the deal. And this is really the vision that God has given us in alignment with this. Our vision is that whether you're a plumber, a preacher, a pastor, a physician, whatever you are, that you will be raised up and see your role in this world as a man or a woman of God sent to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. This isn't just for a select few off here somewhere that are going to go give their life as a vocation. This is for every man and woman, every boy and girl, every young person that we 
we will see ourselves as a part. Lord, will you send me? Did you know? Let me say this this morning. This sounds far off. When I'm, what I'm talking about sounds like, yeah, that could happen someday somewhere. No, no, no. Did you know that when you walk out that door this morning, the first person you encounter that you, you maybe from here or maybe not from here, the first person you encounter might be your mission field and your responsibility is to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ to everyone, everywhere, at all times, in every situation. We'll know his prayer is being answered when individuals answer a specific call and ministry becomes their passion. I want all the, I want all the young people under 25 to listen to me this morning. You're here. I know there's a bunch in the chapel next door. I want you all to listen to me. While you're praying about your future, while you're praying about what God wants me to do, wants you to do, don't pray so fast that you don't leave a window open for God to call you to something specific and special for His purpose. We need pastors. We need missionaries. We need Christian teachers. We need men and women who will say, I will give my life for the service of the kingdom of God. Everybody's a missionary. Everybody's a minister. But this also means that there are going to be those that God is going to lay his finger on them and say, I am choosing you to do the work. I still believe that you ought to be called by God to go into the ministry. I believe God does that. Young people... Pause for a moment in your pursuits and say, God, what are you saying? What are you saying? Lord, what do you want to do with my life? But there are many times that we, we misunderstand that if, if we didn't decide that at 22, then I'm past that. Can I just now talk to everybody over 22 or 25? Everybody above that. This is where it's going to get scary. Will you say, Lord, what do you want me to do? What's the specific call? I don't know. Maybe you'll become a pastor. Maybe you'll go overseas. Maybe you'll start a ministry here in the States. And I can look around this room and throughout this church, and I can see men and women like Alice Peverall, who's on our staff and is at a spiritual retreat this weekend, who was full-time for the Department of ABC. And God called her from that, and now she's on staff at East Lake Community Church at like 50 years of age. I see Ron Gordon over here. A corporate executive who for years was very, very blessed and successful and, 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 and very smart in the corporate world. And God called him and he's working full time in the kingdom of God. I think about Curtis Cornell. Same story. He's full time in the work of the Lord. I don't believe all of us ought to quit our jobs and go, you can't do that, all right? But I do know Everybody's a missionary. Everybody's a minister. But God's going to lay his hand on somebody's life. I think about Gary Hannabas. He runs a backhoe and an excavator. And now he's on staff with E3 Partners going around the world sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love it, Gary. I'd love to be with you in one of them foreign countries someday. And be with a Virginia redneck down there. I just love that. (laughs) He's one of the coolest dudes I know. See how cool God is? And there are many other stories this morning that I could tell. Jesus didn't say anything, but will you pray? So the only thing to do is pray, right? Will you pray with me this morning? Uh, I did it in the first service. Might, Might as well do it in the second. I need two or three people to come up here and pray 
pray a prayer. And chapel, I want you to do this. I want you guys to grab a mic, and I want you to pr- have a couple people pray over there. You can turn our mic down if you'd like. I, I know everybody in this room's name, almost, so don't make me call you out, all right? I need two or three volunteers to say, Pastor, I'll pray a 30-second prayer that God will raise up somebody. Raise us up and send us into the harvest field. Who will do that? Hey, man, Gary, come on. Walter, come on. I need a lady. Got two guys. I need a lady. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Gary, I want you to pray. And I want us all, this isn't popcorn prayer where you get a bag of popcorn and listen to them pray. I want you to pray, okay? Lord, will you send forth laborers into your harvest field? Ask the Lord what he have you do. Gary, you pray a prayer. You can pray. Walter, you pray, and then we'll close. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much. Thank you again. Now we'll have mic on. <laughs> Father, for the message that you put in the scripture for us to hear these words this morning. Father, I thank you for the great commission. I thank you for the blessings you bestowed upon my life once I surrendered from just being involved in a church to going out with passion to truly seek to do your will. And Father, I just, I, I just ask now that you would raise up laborers for the harvest. Father, we see this several times in Scripture that you asked us to pray. So we come before you this morning to ask that you would just uh, encourage each and every person that's here this morning, that, Father, you would just engage each and every person, that, Father, you would just draw them unto yourself, that, Father, you would truly make us missionaries for your work, um, whether it's here at home, whether it's through the front door, immediately in the parking lot, or, Father, if it's all the way around the world somewhere else. And, Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to, to serve you in this capacity. And, Father, we seek your will. It's in Jesus' name to glorify your heavenly name. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, things that we have never even imagined. I pray, Father God, that you would send laborers into the harvest, that you would give all of us willing hearts to be those laborers, either here in Manita, Smith Mountain Lake, or to the uttermost parts of the world. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the gospel, for your saving grace and your mercy. And we love you. Dear Lord, we give you thanks for the presence of God in this place. And we ask for the anointing of the Holy Spirit to fall onto each and every person, man, woman, and child here at Eastlake and those that are in the chapel and online. Lord, we give you thanks for their compassion that comes from knowing uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask for a stirring in their hearts in a way that they have never felt before, that they are urged uh, by the love of Christ to share that love with as many people. And we just give you thanks that we are not a church that comes, but we are a church that goes. And we are claiming the victories of each and every one who is stirred by the Holy Spirit to serve in a mighty way. Father, forgive us where we, we let fear keep us from being obedient. So I ask, Lord, that you give us the boldness and the courage to step out, to step out of that boat and to keep our focus, our eyes on you. 
because you have called each and every one of us to go out and to tell your gospel, to tell others what you have done in our lives. It's just a simple story. We just have to say what you have done and how you have changed us. So, Father, I pray that you will stir the hearts here and have the men and women stand up and go out and be courageous with you. In your heavenly name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Karen, Walter, Annie, Gary. I want us to stand together and let this chorus be a prayer that we pray each from our heart. It simply says, Lord, whatever you want me to do, my answer is yes.